with so much focus on the presidential election in the United States, a study published in JAMA Internal Medicine in October may not have gotten the attention it deserved. But we noticed it here at IHI, and I'm sure many of you did as well. Researchers reported on the quality of outpatient care in the U.S. over a 10-year period, looking at recommended care such as cancer screenings, overuse and underuse of treatment, and patient satisfaction. The results were mixed, and that didn't surprise national health care expert and researcher Beth McGlynn. In a commentary published in the same issue of JAMA Internal Medicine, she and her co-authors argue that preoccupation with pay-per-performance metrics, I think I can say that, and measurement overall has become a sort of distraction from underlying system and work redesign, all needed to achieve greater improvement across the board. So how do you see what's going on? That's our topic on today's WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We are here for you live bi-weekly and after the show. You can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. It's more than appropriate that we nabbed Beth McGlynn for this WIHI. If you ever said to someone, on any given day, Americans receive half the recommended care they should to prevent leading causes of illness and death, you were referring to Beth McGlynn's seminal RAND study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003. Now, Don Berwick knows that study well, and he's here, too, to enrich the discussion and think aloud with us about what to do when improvement in one area seems to leave other areas unchanged or behind. I'm going to introduce Beth and Don, our panelists, in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier to remind all the WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask your panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the send to bar when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host of the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI. Please take the time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. Now we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting anytime you want. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can bring others into the conversation. And also, always a reminder, if you're only tuned to this program by the phone and not by the computer, you're welcome to email info at IHI.org to get any of the materials we're sharing with you today. All right. Two introductions. Mm -hmm. 
On the phone from California, we've got Beth McGlynn. She's Vice President for Kaiser Permanente Research and Executive Director of the Kaiser Permanente Center for Effectiveness and Safety Research. She's an internationally known expert on methods for evaluating the appropriateness and quality of healthcare delivery. And I want to invite you to read through her bio to get a much fuller picture of Beth's enormous contribution to the field over the years and now at KP. Welcome, Beth. Thank you very much, Madge, and it's uh, it's great to be here today. Fantastic. So to All right, I'm going to just, I don't mean to cut you off. Uh, that's my obnoxious role as host here. We're going to introduce Don, and we're going to, Beth is so Don, raring okay. to go. <laughs> On to Don. Lose a minute. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to cover, believe me. Okay, so glad you're with us, Beth. Uh, And Beth was in flight, wondering if she would, you know, land in time. So we're so glad that she did. So thanks. Now, Don Berwick uh, is right across from me here in the studio. He's president emeritus of IHI, a senior fellow, and he's also an IHI board member. And as you know, he's a former administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a bit in the news these days. Don is a pediatrician by background and as busy these days as he's ever been on several continents, he's spearheading change and guiding leaders on quality improvement. So don't forget to read Don's bio too for more details. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Madge. All right. So this is how we're going to get going here. You, Beth is just uh, about ready. So here's my first question. So we really want to make sure everyone's up to speed. I referenced uh, this amazing study from 2003. And uh, I think uh, let's let's talk about that earlier study because it did set a certain foundation, uh, which people have been uh, mentioning uh, forevermore. Thanks, Beth. So um, let's see. Are we? Uh, help me. We're going to show some slides, or just want me to chat? Well, start talking, and we'll get those slides going right okay, now. Right. So, okay. So first. Um, to get- yeah. To get us started, I was going to just take a little trip down memory lane um, uh, just to remind people, because it was a number of years ago, about um, this previous work that was done. Um, so as Madge mentioned, we found um, and reported in 2003 that American adults were getting about 55% of recommended care for the leading causes of death and illness. And what we took a look at were 439 uh, indicators of quality for 30 acute and chronic conditions, and then preventive care as well. Um, we did uh, chart reviews on um, from all of the doctors that the 6,700 patients participating in the study had seen over a two-year period, um, and we supplemented that with survey, um, with telephone surveys with them. Um, not only did we find that um, care um, only met the standard about half the time, we saw a pretty uh, considerable variation uh, by condition, from, ranging from about 80% of recommended care for cataracts to um, about 11% for alcohol dependence. If you go to the next slide, I just um, uh, also want to remind people that we found a very similar thing uh, for children uh, out of this same work that they were getting about 47% of recommended care um, for uh, critical ambulatory care. If you go to the next slide, we um, reported subsequently that um, no matter where you were, we had the ability to look at these 12 um, metropolitan areas. Uh, the care was pretty much the same. Um, I, as a researcher, despaired in these findings because only, I thought, differences would sell in the uh, press, but I had a, a good uh, person 
uh, make the observation that you weren't safe anywhere. So you can see here that um, it was pretty much uh, in the middle of the road there. Um, Boston, sadly, was not on top. Um, in fact, Seattle was the best-performing community, um, and the Seattle Post uh, examiner at the time, the headline on the study was Seattle, best of a bad lot. So, um, so and then we um, reported after that um, that, um, that while we found some modest differences in quality by sociodemographic characteristics with women and younger people and those with higher incomes getting somewhat better care, um, those differences really paled in comparison to the gaps between current performance and, and optimal. So most people were getting care at around that 55% uh, mark, and so the differences were, you know, two, three, four percentage points. So kind of uh, my storyline on this body of work is that there are um, were substantial deficits in U.S. quality. Those deficits could be found in your community no matter how much you thought it was a terrific medical mecca, and those deficits likely applied to you. Um, and so I think um, this certainly got people's attention. It led to a lot of activity to try to um, pr- you know, produce standard measures to do public reporting, paper performance, some of the financial incentives, some of the delivery system changes. And so not surprisingly, people have been asking the question, um, so with all this activity and, um, and attention, you know, is this making any kind of a difference? Um, and, and the answer really is sort of uh, yes and no. Um, I'll say that we've tried for years to um, get a funder interested in replicating our study, and it turns out it's too expensive for most of them to uh, bite. Um, but we did have um, this uh, article that was published in um, JAMA Internal Medicine uh, online in October and in print in December. Uh, that and if you can go to the next slide, use a Hold very one different second. Method. Whoops! All right, I'm gonna. I, I really hate. I just uh, definitely. Oops. Please don't think of me as an interrupter. It's definitely not my style. Oops. But hold on one second because I want to get Don in here before we dive into the most oh, recent. Okay. Let me get Don in okay. here for a second, okay. and because Don, I don't know if you are. I, I came to IHI in 2004, and for several years I played a role. I told Beth this. I was always correcting how people talked about her study because there was a temptation to say uh, 50% of Americans are receiving recommended care or, Ameri- you know, exactly some version of it. But you would agree with me that this uh, research, you know, uh, not unlike maybe to Eris Human and some other things, has had real staying power. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, let me first say that, that uh, in any uh, pantheon of American healthcare researchers, Beth McGlynn, she probably operates, uh, op- occupies the first slot. I mean, there's no, been nobody more influential than Beth in health service research overall. But if all she had ever done was this one paper, uh, that still would have earned her uh, a pretty high ranking. It's an amazing paper. Uh, people kind of knew it. There had been plenty of papers on failure of uh, adherence to uh, guidelines, for example. Um, but this, she put it all together, and, and this paper really gave us a comprehensive statement. You're right. It was widely misinterpreted to be a statement about people, not procedures. This is 55% of the needed care was given, 45% not. Uh, Beth can comment, by the way, on one very important aspect there, which has to do with overuse. And actually, Beth, I've never been quite clear in my mind about how this paper interacts with overuse, but it was it just brought it all together. And remember, this was on just on the heels of, uh, of uh, crossing the quality chasm. So it was uh, the, the country had been put on alert about quality issues near Beth 
nailed it. And uh, it, 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 it still is. Uh, it's one of the great archival pieces in our literature. Well, no, thanks, Don. So not surprisingly, Beth, and you're going to now tell us about this latest uh, study uh, that slipped into our midst in sort of a fierce time in October. Uh, if you were choosing a time to publish, you know, you might have, uh, one might have hoped for another time. But there it was. And I really wanted to bring it to light. And I'm not surprised at all that they asked for your commentary on it. So let's it's not a strict update of your work, uh, but it's certainly a kissing cousin. Tell, tell us about it. Thanks. So, um, right. I, so I think, you know, I, I was saying that I think that, um, uh, that, you know, people have wondered, are things getting better? Because certainly we've invested a lot of time and energy in a lot of activity um, around measurement and other things. Um, and so, but it's been very hard to replicate. And, and this, um, and the study that Levine and colleagues published, um, uses a, a different method, uses um, many fewer indicators, looks at many fewer conditions, um, and, and, but tried to look at, at, you know, well, how are things going from the time, say, our study left off to, um, 2013, which was um, as current as they as they could get, and this is um, this is something only researchers will care about: repeated cross sections. So these aren't the same people that are followed over time. These are this is looking um, year by year at at what's going on from some national data sets that are available. And I just picked these two um, um, result slides from that article because I think it's a it's a great case of a picture's worth a thousand words. This is flatline performance. I mean, we can see that. Some some areas um, look better than others, but those areas were better to begin with, and they've, you know, I guess the good news is they've pretty much stayed better. But if you look at this, I think largely what we see is um, that there really hasn't been a lot of, uh, of improvement, and, uh, you know, that's what I would have told you I, I think is possible. Now, this isn't to say there, I mean, I think there have been improvements, but um, it's, it's um, uh, someone I heard once say, islands of excellence. You can point to places, um, and I'll certainly um, show you from my own institution that have made um, substantial inroads, but this is telling you on average that we're at about the same place as we were um, previously. Oh, okay, Don. Yeah, go ahead. Beth, just uh, not to pull us off into a detail, but would you comment on the data source here, the use of the medical expenditure panel survey for this study? And also, let's remember, this is a study of outpatient care only. I think we should clarify that. But did, did you believe yeah, the data? So, so, I mean, I believe the data. I think they don't. I think um, my main concern is I don't think it's a direct comparator to, um, you know, what we did. And, and that, that study is really optimized to understand that, that data source is optimized to understand um, spending more than quality. And so the researchers had to make some choices about the kinds of quality metrics that they, um, they picked. It was sort of what was available for each one of those years from 2001 or 2 to 2013. Um, some of those are sort of, I think, um, limited, uh, the, that data source doesn't have the same deep chart review um, work that, that we did. But I think for the things they picked, it's a reasonable data source. Okay, uh, thanks. All right, so let's pivot uh, a bit and get into some of your analysis of why we're seeing what we're seeing. Uh, I wanted to just throw in that uh, me, who is, um, I, I, I am not in any way, shape, or form a health researcher analyst, 
but you know, you have you look at certain things like best ca- practice rates to prevent stroke and heart attacks have risen, along with colon cancer screenings, while screening rates for breast and cervical cancer have declined. And just looking at screenings alone, you would think that if there are good processes being put in place to get good recommended screenings, uh, that that would somehow go across the board. So that's that's a, among the kinds of things, and it may be just something I'm not understanding about how that the others could go down. Um, I mean, how some of them... Right. In other words, if certain... Yeah, if certain rates are... Cancer screening rates are going up, others are going down. Uh, And uh, I don't know if that's uh, a fluke or it's too complicated to explain. But that jumped out at me. So, I mean, I think this is a theme that we'll sort of hit on repeatedly in our conversation, which is what that mostly tells me is there isn't a system in place. And so that um, each one of those, the approaches that um, in in general are being taken to screening for um, key health problems that are, um, you know, that can, where the outcomes can change if people act early, um, uh, that probably each and every one of those is being done slightly differently by slightly different groups and that there isn't really consistency in terms of learning um, systematically what, what it takes. Some of the screenings, frankly, are um, more difficult um, to encourage people to do. Colorectal cancer screening has um, traditionally been really uh, more difficult to convince people, and it, it started far behind breast cancer screening. So I think, you know, the other thing you have to look at is the attribute of the particular um, clinical, um, the, the particular screening test itself. But mostly I'd say it's a, it's a sign there's not really a systematic approach to, say, doing screening for um, important conditions. Okay. So, Beth, talk a little bit about your commentary uh, in the JAMA Internal Medicine and, uh, you know, what were some of the key points you wanted to make? And we can move on to uh, that next slide there, why these, surpri- these findings are not surprising. Go ahead, John. Probably need, need to go two slides forward now. Yeah. We're, we're there. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, you know, as, as I said in the uh, the commentary uh, that I wrote with um, uh, Eve Kerr and John Adams, who both were um, their colleagues of mine that participated in that initial study, I think, you know, we made three main points, and, and they're shown here, that measurement is necessary but not sufficient, um, that payment reform could can facilitate improvement, but it by itself isn't enough, and that, you know, essentially it takes a system. So, um, and, and I think what I'll suggest, Madge, if I'm picking up the, the cadence of this, is I'll, I'll talk about the first one, and then um, and then Don probably wants to jump in on this one in particular, because I think it's an area he and I have debated over the years. So, um, you know, in terms of measurement being, I would say, necessary but not sufficient, measurement really draws attention to the problem. In fact, our initial study um, demonstrates that um, before that point, we really didn't have um, health professionals or the lay public believing that there was a a quality problem. So the IOM report and and our study um, caused people to say, whoa, you know, something's going on here. So it draws attention. It can help by virtue of the measures that are selected, um, set priorities intentionally or or unintentionally. But by itself, measurement doesn't directly create change. Um, And and the example I use, um, which is near and dear to my own personal experience, is you can weigh yourself every day, you get a number on the scale, 
But if you don't change your diet or your exercise, that number's, you know, well, if you're lucky, it's not likely to change. Uh, if, you're, if you're not lucky and you're getting older, it might go the wrong direction. Um, so measurement by itself doesn't create change. Um, and, and so uh, I think expecting that, that, that is, there's going to be a one-to-one relationship is, is problematic. And then there's been a lot of debate about the problems with some of the existing quality measures. Um, what I like to say is I do think quality measurement is, is important, but I think we're at a time where we need to pivot to um, the next generation of quality measures. And I, I think that they need to be Quality itself needs to be, and the measurement of quality needs to be integrated into care delivery. It needs to not be a separate enterprise, a separate exercise. It really needs to be part and parcel of how um, work is done. Um, and I think that um, when you begin doing that, you begin to open up the opportunity to create system-level solutions as opposed to one-off, I'm going to deal with this patient in front of me and one or two things that they, they need. So um, I would argue we shouldn't throw out um, measurement altogether. I know there are those who would like to do that, but by itself, we shouldn't be surprised that that's not enough to change things. Okay. Thanks so much uh, for all this work and your observations, and I hope people are getting ready to ask certain questions. So, Don, let's turn to you. To add to them, uh, uh, Beth is thinking you might want to say a thing or two about payment reform, uh, pay for performance, and some of the systemness. And um, you spoke about some of this recently uh, when you were talking uh, to, at the uh, MITS uh, annual, the Medically Induced Trauma Support Service annual meeting. You've been sort of thinking a lot about where we are, you know, in our, in that case, of course, you were talking specifically about safety, but there's some sort of overriding themes, I think. Yeah, it echoes also in the ERA 3 talk that I gave yes, at the forum right. two years ago, the year before last, yes. uh, saying that the reliance on measurement for improvement is, uh, it's, it's, uh, intellectually bankrupt. It doesn't doesn't work. The, the African proverb I quoted is, weighing a pig doesn't make the pig fatter. And uh, it, it's true. And, you know, Beth's uh, eloquent uh, uh, commentary really lays out the, the, uh, the problem very, very well. Um, Beth's plea for measurement for will building, yes, uh, I think we, we need to have will. And uh, when it's done as well as Beth did in that 2003 article, uh, lots of people go on alert. Uh, Liam Donaldson, uh, Sir Liam Donaldson from England, is, is fond of saying that the most the four most dangerous words in medicine are I, "it cannot happen here," and that means that some of the, the look hard look at appropriateness of care and missing care and overuse probably needs to be done locally too. So there's some measurement helps, but we're way, way, way over the useful levels now. I'm teaching at Harvard Medical School right now, and it, my heart sinks literally to describe to these medical students all the metrics that they're about to encounter as young professionals. It, it, it demoralizes just hearing about it, let alone experiencing it. So we've, we've got to get back in balance. Um, payment's the same. Uh, payment's just another way to press things from the outside. I imagine teaching my uh, seven-year-old grandson to play piano, and what I'll do is set up a payment system, and I'll measure his accuracy, and then he'll play the Pathetique Sonata. Of course not. He needs to learn how to play the piano. And it's the same thing here. And Beth's commentary goes that we're going to have to get into the nitty-gritty of helping people change what they do once the incentives are supportive, once the measurements are reasonably accurate. Then there's this job of improvement. IHI's existence is there. It's the It's the the methods and deeds of improvement given a context 
um, supportive and, and the will to, ch- to change, uh, somewhat narcissistically, no, very narcissistically, I'd like to refer people to a speech years ago that I gave on this uh, called Run to Space. If you look in the video, which the link will be put on the web, uh, you'll see me with a lot darker and more hair <laughs> and a, a much fitter time of my life. And I, at that time, I was a soccer coach for a, a group of girls' uh, soccer team, and I, I kind of gave a funny speech showing different ways to approach coaching, one of which would be to change their pay them, and some one of ways would be to measure their goals, but another one might be teaching them soccer. And and that's really the it's, we're missing it now. We, we, we have not yet committed as an industry for to actually improving care through learning, and that's been, I mean, that's that's a song I've been singing a long time. I want a uh, quick follow-up, and then I want to uh, ask Beth a little bit about what's been going on at Kaiser Permanente, where she is now. Um, do you have any sense, Don, in a way that folks are almost in some sort of a quagmire here of both can sort of conceptually and then operationally trying to deal with improving the rates of good recommended care, trying to get a better bead on overuse uh, and, of course, you just were involved in uh, helping to frame several articles that just came out in The Lancet about overuse and underuse, uh, right care series. And then this whole <laughs> conum jump for many, which is on patient satisfaction and trying to sort of thread the needle uh, every day in terms of uh, sort of how that's going to work. So... I, I hope we can get into this in some of the discussion. It's almost sort of concrete ways to pivot because I suspect a lot of people are on this call because they agree, and I have a feeling folks are really wondering how they climb out of a, a certain, I don't know, set of kind of colliding ideas here. Yeah, it's a complex question, man, but we're, we're, in, we're in collision in, in quagmire to some extent. The reasons are very complicated, too much for this for this broadcast, I think, but energy levels are flagging as people feel so uh, pushed pushed by the changing context. Um, I think that the political scene isn't helping right now. It's creating enormous uncertainty, and that's a very bad time to learn. When you're not sure what's going to happen, learning gets chilled. Um, more basically, though, I do think we have a problem of skills. Uh, we haven't, we still haven't invested in healthcare in the building of everybody's knowledge about how to Im- how to improve. And if you want to see a great counterexample, go to Beth's organization, Kaiser Permanente. Treme- I don't think the scores at KP look anything like the uh, article that we're reviewing do. In fact, Beth has some of those data in her in her commentary, and that's because Kaiser Permanente, among organizations of the country, has taken improvement as a central strategy, and they built the skills, the will, the internal energy to do it, and they resource it. In terms of balancing our, effort, our efforts, let me take two quick points you made. One is patient satisfaction. We're about to see the OECD, uh, the Organization for Economic and, what is it, Cultural uh, Development, um, the cooperation and development, uh, 39 countries uh, in Paris on Monday, I'll be there, is going to release uh, PREMS and PROMS, patient-reported experience measures and patient-reported outcome measures, their review of that as a new needed mainstay for measurement, and I'm totally supportive of that. Uh, the patient's experience does matter, and it is quality. And hearing back from the people we serve, is, I think, is absolutely an important part of a measurement portfolio. It doesn't scare me the slightest. If people expect things that can't help them, we have an educational job, but let's at least know it. Uh, so a balancing of the kind of metrics that Beth is more familiar, more has promulgated more, and the PREMS and PROMS, I think, will be good. Let's ask people how we're doing. I think that's a good idea. Overuse is something that has become a real passion of mine. Lancet last week had a series of four papers uh, in a collected um, uh, issue 
on overuse and underuse worldwide, globally. I wrote an editorial for that piece. I have long felt that one way to get over the hump of being able to invest in making people uh, more confident in getting what they need is not to do what doesn't help them. And I think we need to get really serious, especially now under financial stringencies we're probably going to see about uh, dealing with the use of things that can't help, don't help, uh, as a defect in quality. Thanks. Okay. We'll get some of those links up there. And I see some of you are asking for sort of trying to get some good examples. All right. Let's start here. Uh, Beth's going to tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that Kaiser Permanente has been doing that illustrates more of what we're talking about with sort of more fundamental work redesign and sort of system level improvements. So what what has been going on there, uh, Beth? And maybe you can also deal with some of the, I think, sometimes a little bit of cynicism that creeps in. And people say, oh, that's Kaiser Permanente. They have, you know, endless resources to invest in these kinds of things. But but t- tell us what's been happening uh, and what could be applied elsewhere. Um, sure. So if we could bring up the hypertension slide, I, I, I put this in here just as an example um, to try to illustrate that this is um, this can be challenging work, but, you know, it's possible. And I would say that when I say it takes a system um, – you know, I, I, I would include um, leadership that sets a, a course and that, um, and that really says uh, that makes it a priority of the organization. It takes attention to the culture of the organization and making um, this sort of work job one. Um, it takes engaging everybody in the organization. To Don's point, we've sent, um, we have sent a large number of frontline folks to um, get training, quality improvement training, so that we're not, uh, so that everybody sort of understands and has that um, um, uh, uh, the capacity, so capacity building. And then you need a mechanism in place. We've been talking a lot. um, I was just in a meeting yesterday about learning health systems. You need a mechanism for sort of feedback and ongoing understanding of what's working and and not working. So in the hypertension example, um, you know, what you can see is that um, this is Kaiser Permanente Northern California. California, but we can see the same in many, uh, in almost all of our regions, went from having um, hypertension control um, at about 45% in 2001 to now, and uh, this doesn't have the most recent data, it's over 85%. And what it took was a lot of different uh, uh, steps. We built a registry so that we could have real-time information flow on the population with high blood pressure. We um, integrated treatment algorithms into the workflow so that um, when you're seeing the patient in front of you, you've got some decision support uh, tools available. We developed performance um, reports, feedbacks, their dashboards that the clinicians can see. They can see which of their patients are um, in, in their panel are, um, uh, you know, in need of greater attention. We integrated pharmacists and nurses into the primary care team, so it took a team-based approach and used um, the expertise that those other clinicians bring to the table. Um, we focused on trying to increase the number of people who are on fixed-dose combination drugs to make it easier for patients to adhere to therapy. We created drop-in visits that didn't have any copays attached to them, so it was easy for people um, to come in and get a blood pressure check and then gave us an extra opportunity for um, counseling 
counseling to work with a patient to see what was going on. And so that's when I'm talking about a system, it's being able to put all those pieces together. And, we, we, and what I think is important is that we built these systems in a way that can be translated into uh, diabetes and asthma and other conditions so that um, you're, you aren't doing one-off system um, building. You're really trying to create uh, a system of systems that can be um, applied to, um, you know, the, the next to all of the priorities for the for the organization. So that's really kind of, um, you know, uh, w- the kinds of things that I'm, I'm talking about. And have the results been also kind of moving in the right direction with some of the other chronic conditions as well? Yes, yeah. So um, high rates of uh, control of blood sugar for diabetes, good sort of prevention of exacerbations in um, asthma, um, you know, good reductions in... Uh, preventable cardiovascular events through, um, we have a specific program in that area. So, yes, the, we, we see this. I, I just used one example for time, but, yes, it's, sure. uh, we can see it in lots of areas, yes. Okay, thanks very much. All right, I think what I'd like to do, thanks so much, uh, Beth and Don, both for laying out some things. I was about to ask you, Don, a little bit more about putting measurement on a diet. We were talking about diets earlier, but let's hold on that for kind of the Q&A. And, uh, John, just remind everybody how to make sure that their questions are coming to all of us uh, and you can take part in the chat. Make sure your uh, questions and comments are directed to all participants in the send to bar down in the chat. Okay. Thanks a lot, John. And um, I, I guess what I want to uh, invite, our people are sort of asking for examples, uh, and there is a question, uh, so maybe we'll just turn to that. Um, and the metrics front, I don't want to put Beth on the spot, Beth, if you weren't prepared to speak to this, but I'm curious if uh, Kaiser Permanente is discovering also as it does some of this work and gets at more of the systemness of it, if there are certain metrics uh, even that, you know, can go by the wayside, then I'd like Don to kind of weigh in on this issue in general because it keeps coming up. Um, Beth, and anything you can share on that front? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think the challenge is that most organizations today can't afford to walk away from the, the metrics that they're required to report on um, for um, CMS or, um, you know, or other purchasers. And so um, while I think that um, there are uh, good examples where I think performance has topped out, that is, you're not likely to see substantial improvement. Um, you know, performance is very high and you're not likely to see, um, you know, continued or continued improvement. Those are areas where you might want to um, consider relaxing um, or, or um, you know, Giving a, a we talk about drug holidays, giving a measurement holiday uh, for for some areas, um, and so I, I mean I think that's actually the conversation we need to be having is how do we use what's a, a reasonably um, scarce um, uh, resource and and make sure it's being used well. And and the problem is that one size doesn't fit all. But I, I do think that there, um, and I that in another commentary you current I wrote about um, really creating. Um, what we call safe harbors for improved performance, um, really opportunities to let high-performing organizations um, take a step back from the routine measurement and do something innovative in both care delivery and measurement. Um, uh, and, and I think that would actually help begin moving us forward. 
Thanks, Don. Thoughts about measurement. It keeps coming up. You've talked about it. <laughs> I mean, the metrics, I mean, this is one of the things that uh, Beth pointed to in her commentary, uh, which is maybe not necessarily, you know, leading. Uh, it's people are sort of, you know, fulfilling what they're obligated to do, but um, maybe not getting, it's not freeing up other kinds of things. Um, I'll, I'll begin by acknowledging that I'm sometimes feel a little lonely on this. I, th- I think there's a lot of people in the healthcare world who, who, who disagree very strongly with, my, with what I believe, but what I do believe it. And I think we're battering the system with measurement now. It, it's come about generally for good logical reasons. Each, each metric, each, each demand from a payer or a regulator in its own has made some sense. But when you look at the aggregate, the burden that doctors or hospitals or groups uh, now fall under, it is in, it is insane. And I guess I'll go I'll go that far. Uh, it, you simply cannot take that much energy out of a system for the purpose of responding to measures and expect it to do the rest of what Beth writes about in her commentary, which is actually improve. And you can you can almost measure the um, distraction. Uh, and it, not to mention the human cost. It's demoralizing, and and we need morale now. We need optimism. We don't need uh, 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 people feeling pushed around and, and misunderstood. Uh, that said, uh, we need some measuring. And so my proposal, as you, as you quoted me, this was a year, year ago now, is we need measurement needs a diet. We, we have essentially an industry, the measurement industry, which has never had to deal with a constraint. If you want to do it, you can do it. You can, you can require it pretty much. Um, I think the only way out of that is to create a constraint. The artificial constraint I suggested is let's aim right now for for a 75% cut. Let's just count all the things we're measuring and say we're now on a diet. We can we can measure 25% of what we measure, get to work, and figure out what that is. I personally think intellectually it's a pretty exciting enterprise. Well, suppose we had a year in this country with the top scholars in this field saying we just got a diet. We're down to one out of four. Which are they, and can we really make them great? Um, and I, I – believe technically that is absolutely possible. And the measure of success would be the relief felt by the people giving care, so they have energy to give the care, and by our sense that we actually know know what's happening enough to, to, to assess when we need to assess and make, make improvements when we need to. So I, I, that's, that's where I am on it. Uh, uh, I'll stick by it. Well, you've got a, a friend in here, Don. Somebody is saying, why is this not a national scandal? Think VW cars. So you two will have to talk. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for that comment. I also want to uh, thank uh, Mr. Ayala, who brought out some a, a nice link there about systems, uh, which uh, we'll take a look at. And thank you very much, because we do put together uh, a resource document. There's a question here that's saying, are there ways to kind of automate uh, some of, wait a minute, I have to get to this, the current measure burden to free up resources. Um, And I think maybe what I'll do is, um, uh, Beth, I'll I'll kind of combine that with uh, two things. One is that question uh, that would sort of help uh, whether the EMR, the electronic medical record, is helping or hurting efforts uh, in this. And uh, maybe you can also then tell us tell us a little bit more about the safe harbors thing. Uh, by the way, that's a viewpoint that Beth told me about that I hadn't seen from January of 2016 in JAMA, and we'll share a link uh, to that article as well. But talk about whether there are ways to somehow uh, streamline some of this to free up. So um, 
I would say the answer is that we're um, uh, that there are certainly prob- likely opportunities in the not too distant future to use the nation's investment in electronic medical records to. Um, uh, to make some of the burden of measurement less, um, but it's not for the faint of heart. Um, and um, and I think it, you know one of the things that we talk about in the in the um, uh, the viewpoint that Madge was talking about is um, it, it works um, better for some measures than than others, and most organizations aren't willing to take a hit on their um, performance scores by, you know, experimenting with trying to make some of the um, the methods of drawing that information out of the electronic health record, um, uh, you know, work systematically. So I, I do think that that's, I think we need to look for ways to kind of do that, and, but I would do it within the context of workflows, which is um, the extent that people are using electronic health record, um, it, 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 the, the more we can make it um, a useful tool for um, which, and I think that could be a whole another probably six-part series on WIHI, um, but, you know, but to think about kind of how measurement could be a part of um, just the, the workflow so that it's not a separate enterprise, that then I think we could probably get someplace where it's not a, um, an additional burden and that you're producing information that's actually um, useful for the clinician at the point of care and useful for the patient in making um, decisions about their own care. Um, and, and the safe harbors idea really is, I mean, I guess it's a little bit like Don's, but my, I guess my friendly amendment is let's let high-performing organizations go on a diet, and maybe, maybe they're the ones that don't need to go on a diet, but um, uh, what, I, uh, what I would say is that we, we do need some uh, creativity. I, I, you know, I'm not as, as radical and Don, as Don um, about dropping measurement altogether, but I do think until we sort of free up space in people's you know, time and energies um, to do the kind of work that we need for system redesign, it's going to be hard to make the kind of progress that people think is both possible and necessary. And so, you know, what we proposed was that we um, uh, that we basically, um, you know, create sort of um, uh, measurement-free zones for organizations that are high-performing in exchange for them agreeing to work on both um, improved system design and, um, and uh, novel or innovative approaches to measurement that would, um, you know, kind of pivot us to a better future state. Okay. Thank you very much. Tell us, um, I'm going to take this opportunity to say the study goes, it's 10 years, it it stops at 2013. Uh, This is the October study uh, that that prompted our program today from JAMA Internal Medicine. Uh, Do you think anything would be any different based on things that have even happened just in the last few years, Beth? I don't really think so. I mean, I don't really think that there's a reason to believe that anything that happened since 20, that's happened since 2013 um, would make those numbers look um, uh, very different. Okay. That's my guess. Okay, okay. And um, what would you say is the study's greatest strength, and what do you think is maybe its greatest weakness? Well, I think the greatest strength is, frankly, just keeping this um, in front of people and reminding them that um, Brownian motion doesn't necessarily move us um, forward. I mean, so it's sort of saying it, it gives us a chance to take a pause and say, um, uh, wow, you know, maybe the kinds of things we're doing today aren't producing the results that we had hoped for. So I think that's that's really um, very important. Um, you know, in terms of a weakness, I, I don't, I, it's, it's mostly that we don't really, I mean, I think it's kind of 
of astounding that we don't have a great way of understanding how well we're doing as a country, despite all of the um, activity that's underway. So I don't, I don't think that's the author's fault. I think they did a tremendous job with, um, you know, trying to find. Um, we we have proposed. My my team has proposed ways to um, replicate the study that I, I'm quite sure are a lot more expensive than um, what um, the uh, Levine and his colleagues were able to do. And so I applaud them for, you know, really trying to keep this in front of people um, to remind them that we don't seem to be making as much progress as possible. And 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 yet we don't really have great information on, you know, how we're doing. And we actually have a hard time answering some of the questions that I've seen in the chat about, you know, um, who, who's, you know, can we sort of identify the factors that lead to um, systematically better performance? And can we, can we think about strategies to replicate those for the country? Unfortunately, I think we've been going down uh, a path of continuing to use um, you know, payment and uh, and and measurement as uh, as the focus, and and I think that's not getting us. And this is you know a point Don made um, into the on the ground system redesign work that has to happen, and then we haven't figured out how to do that um, with smaller organizations. You know, which are um, you know I know one of the criticisms or one of the concerns is um, uh, you know. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of what about the rest of the world that isn't Kaiser Permanente? And I, I think we do need to figure that out because uh, those systems are going to be around for a long time, and so we really have to figure out how do we, how do we help um, the whole country move forward. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. I'm sure a lot of folks are saying, Don, somebody is asking in the chat, uh, we are talking perhaps more about uh, hospitals and ambulatory care, and yet we've got all kinds of things going on in long-term care uh, in terms of, you know, sort of moving things forward. It even strikes me of well, maybe there's some opportunities to do things differently there. Um, how, how do we sort of bring it all together in, in a conceptual way and in perhaps an actual way? I, I agree completely with the question. Uh, it, it, you, know, we, it, it, you know, we measure where the lights are on, and it began with hospitals. Uh, Beth and others were able to generalize that to ambulatory acute care, but we really don't know much at all at the level we need to about long-term and post-acute care. So uh, it, it's, it's just a gap. It, it, measurement has generally followed the money. Uh, you know, where there's been resources, a measurement has occurred in long-term care and post-acute are stressed, very stressed uh, for resources. Same I'd say about behavioral health. Uh, we need to get there. And, in fact, the data that are emerging from more and more sophisticated studies of where the waste is in healthcare and where variation in expenditure is are pointing right at that. Post-acute is an immense problem. So I hope uh, Beth will have the opportunity as a leading researcher to turn her headlights there um, pretty soon and, and, and light up that sector as much as uh, Linda is asking in her question. Thanks, Don. Uh, John? Well, I, I would say... Oh, go ahead, Beth. Oh, can yep. I just say one other, one other thing about that is, because um, this is, I guess, it, um, how you read questions depends on where you sit. I think the other um, opportunity that we're not really looking at is is how um, healthcare and um, community organizations, healthcare organizations and community organizations can work um, better together um, to focus on kind of the total health of people in our communities. So we know that a lot of health 
um, happens outside of these systems. And we know a lot of the deficits that people experience are because of gaps in kind of how these systems, you know, work together. And I think post-acute is um, a great example of, um, of a place where we need to look at what the other um, opportunities are for having the kinds of collaborative arrangements that enable people to, you know, get better after a major event like surgery or some uh, other health event um, in places other than the kinds of places that we know are, are, are sort of problematic. So I would just sort of expand it to looking at kind of community health opportunities and, and sort of a different way that we can configure the relationship between um, healthcare organizations and, and the community and social services uh, um, uh, uh, work. Thanks, Beth. John. Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, so if you enjoyed hearing uh, Don and Beth uh, today and want to go a little deeper into the science of improvement and how uh, it can get results for you and your organization, we encourage you to participate in our new free massive open online course with HarvardX. Uh, you'll learn why improving science is valuable in health and healthcare, why understanding a system is crucial to improving a process, and how to design and execute an improvement project, setting your aim, determining your measures, and running tests of change. Starting on January 18th, this free massive open online course, or a MOOC, will help you build improvement toolkits that will serve them, will help you build improvement toolkit that will serve you long after the seven-week course ends. For more information, visit IHI.org or harvardx.harvard.edu. Thanks very much, John. I want to pull out again just one or two other findings uh, from the uh, Levine et al. study in JAMA Internal Medicine, and again, things that jumped out at me. So here's something that worsened uh, over the course of the study from 2002 to 2013, which was the avoidance of inappropriate antibiotic use. Uh, something that there's been an enormous amount of effort uh, to work on uh, between all sectors, really. Uh, you know, very, very public uh, effort to get patients and families engaged in understanding what, what they really need antibiotics for. Um, Don, I guess I want to ask you, I, I, I don't know if that's... If, if the, if the answer is the same, uh, if uh, we're going to take this this information as at least indicating something, uh, and maybe another study might find, you know, it's it's not as bad as all that. But I I found that kind of interesting uh, imaging also uh, another area uh, that was uh, looked for uh, for um, some improvement, uh, and they were it's just unchanged. I mean, it just stayed exactly the same, which I think is something Beth was was pointing out at the beginning. So what does that say about also our efforts to sort of raise the temperature on these issues and campaigns and choosing wisely and that kind of thing? I'm not sure. And obviously, uh, this is grist for great uh, research. Um, I, I think this may be uh, contextual. Uh, remember, the, the, the utilization is not not stable, not 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 a uh, fixed target. In this case, overuse is driven uh, in part by the marketing of medication. We have we have direct to consumer uh, uh, advertising, and there's there are also those forces out there trying to increase the use of, of medicines and images. And remember, still still today, despite the migration toward different kinds of payment systems, most. People who take care of patients in this country are paid on a fee-for-service basis, and so the uh, the, the economic uh, 
pressure still are to do more. And imaging is a very lucrative and very important part of the revenue plan of a lot of a lot of places. That will change. Uh, I think I think we're in that process right now. But it's uh, it, the context still says more, more, more. Beth, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I guess two things. I agree with what what Don said, and and I, I do think that the national conversation around. Um, uh, overuse and, and if you look historically, the quality debate ebbs and flows between whether we're more worried about overuse or underuse. So I'll just say now we're back at focused on overuse, um, but that's kind of been on and off over the over the decades. Um, so it, it um, I think you know not only do, do we have all these forces, but but we also have a lot of people patients who think more is better, um, and and who um, you know want to have a confirmation that nothing's going on. So so I, I do think that it's complicated to explain to people that less is more, and that's kind of the um, JAMA Internal Medicine runs a, a series on less is more. Um, and I, don't, I think that's a debate we need to understand. Um, the, we were not helped by the whole death panel conversation a few years ago, um, which made people think that withholding is, is actually threatening to people's health as opposed to saying, you know, wise use of resources is actually probably helpful to people's health. So I think there's also just a, a cultural conversation we need to have um, about what's, the, what's sort of an appropriate mix of, um, uh, of services and when does something not make sense. And, and I, you know, we've, I've um, participated in research in the past that suggests that when you help train um, physicians to have those conversations with patients, you can get to the right place. It's another example of, um, you know, needing to really pay attention to both identifying the opportunities to avoid that inappropriate use and then giving people the skills to help navigate um, the challenges in, get, in getting people there. So um, I guess it's not that surprising. I do think that there are new efforts underway that, you know, with any luck, we'll begin seeing some, um, you know, improvement in those those numbers. But um, it's, it's another challenge uh, that we have to deal with. Okay. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's sort of... Um, I, I have a question uh, for you, Beth, uh, and then I think maybe that's uh, kind of wrap up with some sort of parting thoughts. I'm curious uh, uh, if there's research uh, that you're in the midst of, uh, if you're able to sort of tell us what's going on or what you think comes next. And that partly I was also wondering who pays it, who's paying attention to this latest study um, and maybe who isn't paying attention, who should be paying attention. I wanted to, you know, to surface it in case it didn't get enough attention in the fall, but you know, I'm, I'm curious, in your field, do you have a sense that there's a lot of hard looking at, at this kind of thing, or are folks just too overwhelmed with everything else? So, um, you know, I, I, I'll say I haven't seen a lot of attention paid to this study, so I, I suspect for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, it hasn't hasn't gotten, you know, um, um much attention. I think the area that we're talking about is something that a lot of people are, you know, paying attention to and, and worried about. Um, uh, honestly, what I'll, I'll say I, I've been working on is really trying to redesign um, uh, the, our approach to measurement to um, uh, be more focused on 
um, uh, uh, sort of more patient-centered and, and really kind of, and here I have in mind mostly the population with multiple chronic conditions, people who have a lot of things going on and where we don't have systems in place to say what makes sense for them. And since that's going to be, I think, a growing um, proportion of the population that we're dealing with, I think it, it requires a very different approach to um, measurement that's integrated with workflow. So that's, that's the kind of thing um, I'm working on right now. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's time for us to have a pretty major pivot in terms of how we're spending our time and energies um, in, in healthcare, and uh, I suspect that there may be other factors that get more of it, more attention uh, in the coming year or so than that. But you know, I hope we don't lose sight of that. Thank you so much, and I really want to thank you for all your work, Beth McGlynn, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we were able to get onto your schedule uh, and take some advantage of your expertise. Really, I have appreciated it, and your research that you're working on now sounds some, like a good reason to come back to you, uh, and um, I hope we can. Uh, Don, um, this is you know, part of kind of ongoing challenges uh, right now, um, and any sort of parting thoughts that you might have. We've gotten some wonderful comments uh, here, uh, folks really offering some good resources from ARC and others and a way uh, for folks to contribute. Um, I perhaps have been negligent. I'm wondering, you know, as always, and feel free to chat that in right now, folks. I'm curious what drew people to the program today and sort of where you saw your own organization on this recommended care uh, and overuse and underuse. Uh, if you had to, you know, do your own uh, uh, run chart, what do you think is going on? So feel free, anyone who wants to share that. But, uh, Don, any, any parting thoughts for us today? Yeah, well, first, um, may I offer my thanks to Beth as well for participating in this but also for her leadership in this community of inquiry for decades now. And I'm looking forward to continuing work uh, with Beth, uh, an amazing contributor. Thank you, Beth. Um, you know, I, I need to touch my touchstone, uh, which is improvement. And in this very confusing time, a lot of fog, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, uh, you know, I, I guess I want to touch base with the with the stuff that's attracted me for decades and still does, which is the general notion that scientific approaches to making things better, to improving quality, uh, are a root out of many, many problems. It takes method. It takes a system that Beth talks about. It takes a, it takes a scholarship and, and knowledge and action. But there is a way here, and, and it's, it's the root of improvement, scientifically grounded improvement. We know how to do it. We've done it. We need to do more of it. And this is a time, I personally think, when the community on this phone, uh, the, the IHI community and the broader community of improvers worldwide really need to take the ball and, and keep with it because patients depend on it, even while the fog is making it a little hard to see. Um, so this, the, I'm excited by this study. It says, all right, we've got more to do, you know, and we, 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 we can make care of what it should be. We've got to use the methods that work. Definitely. Having the information is always sobering and helpful. And uh, I want to thank, again, Don Berwick and Beth McGlynn, McGlynn, excuse me, and thank you, our wonderful audience, and all the back and forth uh, that you've had in the chat. A reminder, you can download this chat when you get off the program today, or you'll find it on our website tomorrow on the archive page for this program. On January 26th, two weeks from now, we get Don Berwick back here, and this time he's going to be joined by a 
franchise president and CEO, Derek Feely. And we're going to talk about the next wave of uh, patient safety, uh, building on some remarks, Derek uh, Feely's remarks at our most recent national forum and some thinking that Don's been doing as well. So bring your patient safety hat and sort of similar kinds of uh, thoughts and questions that, that you have today. I hope you'll join us again. So just again, reminder, you can download all this, uh, the chat right now. Uh, make sure you have the slides, but it's all going to be there on our archive page as well. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest some future show topics. There are a great group. Uh, there is a great group that helps make WIHI possible. John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jamison Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth Janes, and Haley Ladd. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about this kind of spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.